0: Well, good morning, church. All right. right. got your Bible with you? I hope you do. Turn with me to Matthew 23. I have a confession to make as you turn there. I did the preaching schedule for the whole year into 2024. Figured out last week I missed Matthew 23. So uh, the staff said, skip it and see if they notice. I said, they'll notice. You can't skip a whole chapter. So that means... We're going to do the entire chapter this morning. So for the last 10 weeks, we've been in a mini-series entitled The Rejection I Never Knew. Each week, Jesus having presented himself as the Savior of the world... As the king of the upside-down kingdom was rejected by the religious leaders of the day. And this morning, we're going to see the startling and crazy conclusion to this rejection. For the last several weeks, we've seen the Pharisees. For the last several weeks, we've seen the Herodians. The last several weeks, we have watched the, the, the Sadducees. They just attacked Jesus one right after another, just like old school tag team wrestling WWF style. I grew up watching that. Don't blame me. I had a mom. So, you know, so that's what it felt like. And so these guys, they just keep coming after Jesus. One gets popped. They wobble a little bit, go back, tag their partner. The other one jumps in the ring, all fired up. And while these three groups, they couldn't agree on anything, especially religious issues, they all could agree on one thing. Jesus has got to go. Jesus has got to go and in the trap last week these religious leaders asked Jesus of all of the 613 commandments that are found in the Old Testament which one pick one which one is the greatest. So Jesus the ninja goes and grabs Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is called the Shema, many people know it, and he took a little bit of Leviticus 19 and he sort of connects them together and he looks at them and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, we have to be careful as a church to never reduce faith to knowing the word of God and doing what it says. And some of you are confused right now and like, what did he just say? Knowing God's word and doing what it says is not bad. It's just insufficient. It's unproductive, and if we're honest, it's really exhausting, and and it really can become destructive because if you think about a parallel with your spouse, if your goal in your marriage is to know your spouse and to do what they say, your marriage would be incomplete, would it not? It would be unproductive, and it would be an exhausting marriage. Last week, Jesus confronted this idea, and he invited them into something deeper, much more sustaining, significantly more beautiful, because we oftentimes read that and say, what's the greatest commandment? To love God's word with all my mind. No, God's word gets you to the heart of God. He said our faith is attached to a deep love of God, meaning my affections, meaning my passions, meaning my desires. That's a vibrant faith. It's more than just knowledge. It's a special relationship. My faith must have a deep love of God. An engaged mind without an engaged heart is not faith. But that's not all. Jesus also attached that To loving your neighbor. See, if you have a loving your neighbor problem, it doesn't mean that you have a loving your neighbor problem alone. Why? Because loving your neighbor is an overflow of a love of God. So what we find is when Jesus said love God and then love your neighbor, there's a sense that if the vertical relationship with God is robust... If it's life-giving, if this is full of joy and passion, then the natural overflow of that would be to love your neighbor. So you ready for your first truth bomb this morning? If your heart is not broken with the thought of the people in your world that don't know Jesus... That If your heart is not broken, when you look around and you see the injustices in our culture and your heart doesn't break for what you see, if you're not stirred by the needs in our community, you don't just have a love of neighbor problem, there's a good chance you've got a love of God problem as well. Because as we love God, he changes my affections and he moves me into action. And that's what Jesus is confronting with all of these fights that are happening. And as we saw last week in Matthew chapter 22, verse 41, Jesus is all done with the attacks and it says he went on the offensive. Jesus tells them that this Christ that they've been waiting for was not simply an earthly descendant from one of their kings, meaning it wasn't just about having the right family tree, but that the Messiah is actually divine. And then in verse 46 it says these religious leaders, they're silenced. Now what most of us think is when people debate back and forth that when someone silenced, the conflict is over but Jesus doesn't stop there. There is an edition of your Bible called the red letter edition. Some of you might have that. And what the red letter edition is is all the words of Jesus are in red, everything else is in black. So if you have one of those right now and you look at chapter 23, the whole chapter's red. The whole so he doesn't just win the debate and then just go silence. Oh no. No, no. Jesus Is not done, and he comes out this morning throwing blows. And right up front, if you look at verse 1, what you'll see in verse 23 is you'll see his audience. So, who he's talking to is clearly the religious leaders are there Herodians, Sadducees, Pharisees, but he's speaking to the crowds, and it says he's speaking to the disciples, and he's speaking to them about those guys. Those guys over there. He's like, see those guys over there? Let me tell you some things about those guys. Let me tell you some things about your religious leaders. If you look at verse 2, it says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now, that doesn't mean much to us today, but in the synagogues in the ancient world, the VIP box seat in the synagogue was called the Moses' seat. It was a place of honor. The closest thing I can liken it to today that you might understand without going into this much deeper is if you grew up maybe in a Protestant or mainline denomination, on the platform about here, there's a really big wooden, ornate, handsomely carved seat that's plush and really, really nice. You usually have, have read, yeah, so that's like the Moses seat. And so these Pharisees, they love to rush in early and sit in that chair. They argued over who got to sit in that chair. And verse 3 says, So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. Do everything they tell you to do. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They're showing. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long and you're like, "What is a phylactery?" Phylactery is, if you read the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you know that. Love the Lord your God. We talked about the, all your heart. Bind up this and write them on your walls. Talk about them when you get up and when you lie down and when you walk along the roads. They would take that, write it on a scroll, and they took binding it on your heads. Literally, they would put it in a box, put it on their heads, strap it with a leather strap, or put it on their shoulders and strap it with a, with a piece of leather, but what they would do is, so that you knew how spiritual they were, they would make a really big wooden box. And the box is getting bigger and bigger. And it's like a safe on their head. you know. You know and they're trying to walk around because they want you to know. That's a phylactery, that thing that's on their head. But it also says that they would lengthen the tassels on their prayer garments so when they walk by, you'd go, oh, they are super spiritual. They know what's going on. Verse six continues, they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. Again, much like our concerts, front row, that's the most important seats. And they would rush in early because they would want to get those front row seats that's normally reserved for the nobility of the town. It says they love, in verse 7, they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. They love to be called rabbi by others. For me, you, you know I'm a reverend. Nobody here, I don't think ever, has called me a reverend. If you say that to me in a mall, I will not turn around because, no. But here, they love it. They love to be called rabbi by others. Jesus points over to them and say, hey, guys, I want to talk to you about those people for a second. You're religious leaders, Those guys over there, they love themselves. They love attention. They love influence. They love position and prestige. But they do not love God and they do not love their neighbor. Jesus is saying their religious expression is about themselves and not about loving God and loving others. In fact, Jesus says, starting in verse 8, Look, followers of Jesus should look different. Verse 8 says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he's in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructor, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. He's like, don't be misled by those people. Because those people, they they love power and position and authority and prestige so that people would look at them like they're a big deal when they're not a big deal. Got anybody in your life who thinks they're a big deal? Yeah, me neither. And so what he's saying is they're missing the point. Do you think he has those people's attention yet their blood's probably starting to boil a little bit nobody talks to the religious leaders like this or certainly about them in front of them and then he reminds them of the very meaning of what it what it actually means to be a follower to be a disciple something he's repeated and said constantly about the upside down kingdom that's verse 11 it says the greatest among you will be your servant For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And what he's saying is, you have had the wrong things told to you, and you certainly have had the wrong things modeled for you. What they're doing is not what the Bible teaches. And that really bothers Jesus. It bothers him to his core. They should know better. They were called to lead. They were called to care. They were called to love. They were called to model what it really means to love God with all that you have. But they've made their faith all about themselves. And starting in verse 13, Jesus gets buck wild. And if you don't know what that means, you will when I'm done. He gives eight woe statements, and each woe statement has to feel like a punch in the teeth. And it's going to leave everyone, including these religious leaders, speechless. So we're going to walk through these. I'll summarize what they mean, and I'll also address why verse 14 is missing from your Bible. Uh, one thing I need you to remember, though, is when you hear the word woe, I need you to mentally translate it. It's not a word we typically use today. When we say woe, we spell it different. We're like, whoa, kind of thing. Like we're surprised. Here, when it comes to the word woe, it has the idea ultimately of disaster. It's the idea of horror or intense hardship and distress. And I know that the message uh, paraphrase is not a translation. I get it. But I like the way it translates the beginning of these woes in verse 13. Um, this is what it says in the message paraphrase. it says, "I've had it with you, exclamation point. You are hopeless, you religion scholars, you Pharisees, you frauds." See where we're going? Kind loving, unicorn, rainbow Jesus is about to go out the window, right? Because I don't know if people don't read this section or what. That's the essence of the eight woe statements. Let's start with verse 13. This is what it says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you mask wearers, you actor. That's what hypocrite means. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So he starts off punching hard and fast. He's saying, you religious leaders, you don't know the gospel. These religious leaders have rejected the person and the work of Jesus, and they've taught others to reject the gospel as well. In verse 14, while missing in most of your Bibles, it's missing because most early manuscripts don't have this verse. And those that do, it's actually the exact same verse that's found in Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 20. I'll put it on the screen. This is what it says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Therefore, you will be punished most severely. And to be clear, there's no question that Jesus said these words... He said them. The question is, did he say these words in the context of Matthew 23? Some manuscripts say yes. Some manuscripts say no. I don't know. There's people smarter than me that debate this. But for conversation's sake, let's just say they were included. We'll let the debate stand with them. What Jesus is saying is, you are using religion for personal gain, which means you... Your faith, when you come to church, when you engage, it's not about intimacy with God. It's about you getting something out of it. It's you, you're engaging for, for personal benefit. The third woe is verse 15. It says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Can I, how many times can someone at your workplace yell hypocrite at you before you're like, we're going to have to fight we're just going to have to fight. This, this is crazy. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Wow. Someone's got their angry pants on, right? Jesus is saying that these religious leaders, they're not only lost to themselves, but they're actively leading other people astray as well, dissuading people from true faith in Christ. The the, the fourth is verse 16. It says, woe to you blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold, Or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. What he's saying is you guys have made these man-made system of religious rules, not devotion to the Lord. So I don't know if you remember as a kid, someone would come to you and would make you swear, and you'd have one hand behind your back, and you'd say, I swear, and then they'd walk away, and you'd go, uh-uh, you know, right? You put up, like my fingers across. That's what they were doing. If you swore by this, you could get out of it. But if you swore by this, then you're bound by it. But this over here, you could get out of it. But if you swore by this, then you, then, then you were stuck. And you're like, I lost my secret decoder ring. I have no idea what I'm swearing by. He's like, no, your words matter. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so it's binding. There's no such thing as fingers crossed. Jesus is like, what what are you talking about? This little system of yours is ridiculous. Your words matter. Stop playing these little games. No one's got time for these games. The next woe comes in verse 23. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Listen to this. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former you blind guides you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel i had to say this this makes me laugh if you start picturing this so you got a guy in his garden he's got mint one for me one for you one for me one for you like he's tithing mint or herbs out of his garden but he doesn't care about the injustice that's happening right down the street. That's what he's doing. I'm counting out cumin, whatever thats and I'm gonna give it away, but I could care less about the poverty outside my front door. He's tithing off his herb garden and doesn't care about mercy, doesn't care about faithfulness. I'm giving, yep, that's what matters most. And so what these men have done is they have begun to major in the minors. Know what I mean? They're patting themselves on the back because they tithe off the mint in their little garden, and yet the widow down the street is left in crushing poverty. And Jesus is like, What good is that kind of religion? What good is that? You're missing the point. The six woes in verse 25 it says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. He's saying you've created this sort of performance-oriented religious expression that's all about actions that are designed to impress others. On the outside, you look good. At least in public, you do. But on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones. You're starting in the wrong place. The inside is what truly matters, and you are dead on the inside. With that in mind, he goes on to the seventh woe in verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. He says even your actions are filthy rags because people know what's on the inside of you. You think what you're doing is impressive, and it's not because you're doing it with the wrong motives. You're doing it with selfishness. You're doing it with pride, and everybody knows it. Your outside exposes the depth of your dirty inside even more. You falsely claim righteousness, but you're nothing but a hot mess. Your whole life is nothing but makeup. It's Maybelline. (laughs) Your whole life is nothing but pulling off wigs and lashes are coming off. And you're like, whoa, hey, you know, (laughs) it's Maybelline. That's all it is. And as we get to the eighth woe, I'd imagine that these guys are crushed. Listening to this. And I imagine they're angry. Verse 29 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Remember, he's 48 hours from the cross. And Jesus continues, Others will flog. You'll flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that's been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel. He's the first martyr in the Hebrew Bible from Genesis chapter 4. He says, all the way to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So that could be the prophet Zechariah, or it could be the Zechariah found in Second Chronicles. There's a debate. I don't know. One of those two. The point being, you've murdered them all from A to Z. From beginning to end, you've murdered them all. Everyone that's tried to proclaim to you what it means to walk intimately with God, you've destroyed them and you're as guilty as your fathers were. You think and talk like you wouldn't have done what they did back then. You wouldn't have been like your parents. That's nonsense, Jesus says. You have unteachable hearts. You are evil people. Now, Jesus is here. And the religious leaders are over here. And you're the crowd of the disciples. And you're watching, you're listening to all this. You know they're listening. How do you think that played out in their minds? you are like, oh, right? Because nobody, <laughs> nobody spoke to the religious leaders this way. No one, had after gone, no one had ever gone after them like this before. They're all stunned. They don't know what to say. And so Jesus breaks that silence in verse 36. It says, truly I tell you, all of this will come on this generation. So all these things will come upon all of these people who are here, who have been influenced by all of this kind of teaching And they've bought into everything that these religious teachers have told them to do. They're looking just like them. They're buying into it all. And what's strange is we can read all of these woes and all that's happening in those days religiously. And it's so easy for me to go, man, I am so glad that I am not one of those guys. I am so glad that I'm not messed up like those guys. I am so thankful that I am not a Pharisee. And as I sat and thought through each woe this week, I began to wonder if I was more like them than I care to admit. I began to wonder, yeah, I don't have an herb garden, not counting dill in my backyard. But there is a sense that some of these woes that Jesus walked through might actually be woes that I find in my life. Is it possible that our religious expression has become such an external thing that we're worried about appearance and what people think of us? about what my Facebook or Instagram posts look like or what my social media platform says or what books I'm reading or what people might think when they come over to my house and do I have the right car are my kids behaving the right way do my kids go to the right schools do I go to the right church do I hang out with the right people we have the right hobbies, and we spend so much time creating a facade of the fake, creating an image of us as we wish we really were, all the while neglecting simple devotion to God. Simple love and passion for God. Can you relate? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Do we not live in a pretty superficial world? We want people to like us. We want people to laugh at our jokes, even the dads in the room. We want to come up with witty one-liners to fill the word requirement in Twitter. We want to look like we have it all together, and I wonder if we're gut-level honest, how different are we really? And it's no easier for me as a pastor. I'm an action-oriented person, and it's easy for me to get caught up in what I'm doing or how I'm performing or what people think of me. I mean, think about it. Every single time I stand on a platform, teaching or preaching, I'm being evaluated by people. And some people say, Kevin, I love what you're doing, and they applaud. And some people hate what I'm doing, and they leave. And some people say, Kevin, I'm going to come to your church. And the next minute people look at me and go, Kevin, I'm going to leave your church. And I deal with that week in and week out. I I deal with that day in and day out. And it can mess with you because as a pastor, if I'm not really, really careful, I can quickly find myself more concerned with what you think of me than concerned with actually connecting you to the living God. I'm trying to show you. It's not all that hard become a Pharisee, is it? And the danger for us all is, we can get really, really concerned with the outside and never think about what's going on on the inside. But the scriptures say, guard your heart, Kevin. The scriptures nowhere says, put on cologne and take a bath, Kevin. It never says, go shopping for the best clothes, Kevin. Guard your heart, Kevin, because it is the wellspring of life. It says, watch your heart diligently, check your affections, check your desires and your passions and your longings, because if I'm not careful, I can study and I can teach and I can communicate and I can lead and I can do it all with a cold heart and no one would know except me. That's the God's honest truth. It's a danger for me, and if we're gut-level honest, I bet it's a danger for you, too. Because some of you are mailing it in missionally at work. You still think where you work is about whatever they produce. You're mailing it in missionally at school. You're mailing it in spiritually with your kids. You're letting anybody And everybody, talk to them about Jesus, and you're staying silent. You don't talk about it when you get up, when you go to sleep. We do our prayers before we go to bed, and that's good enough. Is it? You're mailing in with your friends. You're mailing it in with your church. Your priorities and perspectives have gotten all jacked up and you're not sure what to do anymore. Your Bible readings have become a checklist because you have to make sure the people in your salt and light group or your life group or your life transformation group knows that you've read. And you serve out of guilt or appearance or expectation these days. And who you are at work or school is not who you are at church. And when you look in the mirror on too many days, you see a Pharisee, not a lover of Christ. You see a heart that's far from him. You see a life that's drifted to something that it was never meant to be. The external, the appearance, the byproduct has now replaced A desire for an intimate connection to God. The byproduct has replaced the ultimate thing. And in that moment, we are these people. And so this teaching today might not just be for those guys. I think it might be for me. And for you too. And by the way, this was a very persuasive problem in those days. To the degree that it impacted everyone. That's why Jesus says in verse 37 Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus is mourning for all these people's hearts that are hard, who were just religiously performing because that's what they were taught. They were living out of obedience to God without devotion to God. They did exactly what their leaders taught them and modeled for them. And Jesus continues in verse 38. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And after he says this, Jesus leaves the Temple Mount. Greatest mic drop moment ever. And when you hear that phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, your mind should immediately go back to the triumphal entry that happened just a few days ago in biblical uh, timelines. Because that's what was said of him. And so he says, you're going to hear that again, but it's going to be when I come again at the second coming. And he drops a little nod to where we're going in the next few weeks. We're going to have to look at the second coming. We're going to have to look at the end times because Jesus speaks directly to the end times. And for some of you, the moment I say end times, you get really excited. And you're going to invite all of your friends to come. And for others of you, what it means is If I don't say exactly what you think about the tribulation, or if I don't say exactly what you think about the millennial or the rapture, you're going to get all fired up and let the emails fly. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Right? That's where we're going, like it or not, because we don't skip anything. And so to close, can I just ask you a super personal question? Because this whole thing seems to stem from the upside-down kingdom that is once again on display in verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so can I just ask you, how you doing? How you doing? And I know we've covered a lot this morning, but how you doing? If we look at these woes real quick, how are you doing in terms of your understanding of the gospel? If I stopped the service right now and said, I want you to turn to the person next to you and share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, could you say more than just Easter? Do you know the gospel? Why not? The second woe, how are you doing with using religion for personal gain at church? When you come to church, is it about cultivating a relationship with God? Or is it about cultivating business contacts? You looking for a spouse? You are looking for friends? How you doing? Looking for God. A deep, close relationship with God. Third wall, are you actively leading people astray? Meaning, are you actively dissuading people from faith in Jesus Christ? Maybe not with your words, but with your actions. Because you profess him with your mouth, but you deny him with your lifestyle and your choices. Your neighbors watch where your car goes on Sunday morning. And then they watch how you live when you get home. And your coworkers know where you are right now, and they watch the way you speak to one another at work and what your priorities are. Are you actively leading people astray from the gospel? Fourth, of all is how are you doing creating man-made systems of religions and rules and not simple devotion? To the Lord. Do you realize that your political party affiliation or what cable news network you listen to does not determine godliness? It doesn't. What does that have to do with devotion to God? Do you know what political party affiliations and cable news channels want you to do? They want you to major in the minors because everybody likes a good fight. They want you to think about all this stuff and forget about what really matters. And some of you go, well, I don't watch. Because some of us turn on the news, and it runs all day long. That's a mess, if that's you. Because all you're doing is minor, minor, minor. is coming at you all day long. Maybe you should start listening to something else. And some of you go, well, I don't listen to that, Kev. Ah, I get my news from the internet. You know the internet's not all true, right? Like, Sorry to burst out. You know, and just because somebody says something's true doesn't make it true and there's no such thing as that's my truth and that's your truth. All of that's ridiculous because we can get so wrapped up in minutia and miss the very face and the beauty and the calling of Christ. How are you doing here? How are you doing with these woes? Are the things that you do, are you doing them in order to cultivate intimacy with God or to, are you doing them to look impressive to your friends? You're more concerned with rule following or the hurting and the impoverished and with people who truly need help. What consumes your time? Are you promoting religious apocryphy? Like you're just flat out faking your faith. You're one person on Sunday, maybe at Wednesdays, but then you're a different person on the golf course and a different person in your neighborhood and then a different person when you go out to dinner and then a different person when you come to church on Sunday. You know that's called being a teenager, Right? Yeah, is that you with your faith? If that's the case, you just might be a Pharisee. Final one, are you fiending religious devotion with an unteachable heart? Wherever you go, you always know the most. No one's taught you anything spiritually in a long time. You sit and critique of me on Sundays? Marriott trainings. Pastor James, when he speaks, you evaluate, but you have an unteachable heart. You think you know it all. Can I just tell you, religion doesn't last very long because there's no heart in that. He didn't invite us into a religion, and he certainly didn't die for one. And the scary part is much of this happens slowly over time. Our hearts slowly cool. You know what I mean? Like when you come to faith, faith in Christ, you were all passion and no polish, right? You came to faith in Christ. You get on an airplane. Nobody wants to sit next to you because you're going to talk about Jesus the whole time. Everybody knew that you came to Christ. You're sharing the gospel if someone breathed next to you. It's so fresh. It's so exciting. You're reading your Bible and you're exposed to new truths and it's awesome. And then something happens over time. And now you're not so much passion, but you're a whole lot of polish. And now the heart is beginning to cool to the things of God. And you're kind of frustrated because you used to be one way and you're not like that anymore. What happens is over time, our hearts get hard. And we start becoming a Pharisee and don't even know it. We no longer live for devotion to Christ. And we start going through the motions. And my invitation to all of us, whether you're the youngest person in this room physically or the oldest person in the room physically, whether you've been a Christian for like 30 minutes or whether you've been a Christian for 30 years, if any of this resonates with you on Communion Sunday, may we repent. Like today, during communion. Can we just repent of this and go, God, my heart has grown cold. God, my heart has grown cold. And I need you. Or God, I, I've allowed some things in my life to take the place of the ultimate thing. Can we just be honest about that? Because the gospel allowed us, allows us to be made new in Christ. And if any of us find those issues in our life, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. And he purifies us from not most or some unrighteousness. He purifies us from all unrighteousness. Church, being a Pharisee, is sin. Sin. There's no joy in that. You'll never find joy in that. And as Jesus confronts his listeners, I think he still confronts his readers even today. May we repent of Phariseeism and turn our devotion to Christ. As a church, Let's not in this section, as a family, let's not in this section, as an individual, may you not in this section rejecting him as well.